of Romans, in part because uh, I, Mike likes to give me challenges of starting off in new places and, and doing what the Lord puts on my heart, but I believe, uh, honestly, he just doesn't want me to screw up the book of Romans for him. So uh, we're going to dip into, actually, I, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 34 that I've entitled, uh, Kickstart My Heart. So anytime I can insert a Motley Crue song title into a message, I'm going to do that. But before we get into the message, just a little bit of background. Since this is a departure from where we've been previously through the Bible, uh, we're going to look at the ministry of Jeremiah and how it started off. So Jeremiah's ministry began under a king named King Josiah. And I've put this uh, listing of all the kings of Israel uh, up there on the right-hand side of the screen that you probably cannot read. But the short summary of that is uh, after the time of Solomon, when the kingdoms were all together, because of the sin in Solomon's life, he was told by the Lord, I'm going to rip the kingdom apart. And the northern ten tribes went with a guy named Jeroboam, who was the son of Nebat. And the southern two tribes, that being Judah and Benjamin, became known as the nation of Judah from that point forward, and they went with Solomon's son named Rehoboam. Now, out of the 20 kings in the nation of Israel's history, they had exactly that many good guys, all bad guys out of 20. Now, in the nation of Judah's history, out of 20 kings, they had exactly five guys that were good kings. And Josiah is going to be one of those. But to give you some background into his family tree so we can understand the lineage he came from more specifically, uh, you could say he had a rather complicated family tree. I don't know if any of you in here have a complicated family tree, but I, for one, would fall into that. And uh, as my wife and I started to date, we're actually high school sweethearts, and uh, in, in dating in, in the early uh, part of our years or even months together, I invited her to one of my cousin's birthday parties. Because that's what you do when you're in high school and you don't have any place to go. You go to a cousin's five- or six-year-old birthday party. So while we're there, uh, we go over to this family member's house, and uh, I'm introducing her to people, and this is my Uncle Rusty and my Aunt Camille, and their uh, two boys, Brighton and Brennan, and she uh, asked me a question. She said, what are, what are they doing here? I said, well, what do you mean, what are they doing here? These are, this is my aunt and uncle and their family. And she said, well, that's not possible. Those are my cousins. How can I also be your cousins? And so the look of terror that then became on our face as we'd heard of kissing cousins, but I'm like, listen, I got a girl that moved here from California, Lord. Like I was thinking some fresh DNA up in this small little town, and instead I got my cousin. So uh, fortunately for us, through some historical references and going back through grandmothers that ran the room, we clicked quickly dispelled the idea that we were cousins. This was a marriage situation here, folks, so don't get in an uproar uh, that I married my cousin. But we have complicated family histories, right? And this is a case for Josiah. Josiah's father was a guy named Ammon, and Ammon was not a great king. Uh, in fact, two years into his reign, he was actually conspired against and murdered in his home by his own servants. So if any of you have people that work for you, or if you're a boss at all, if your servants conspire against you and kill you in your home, own home, you're probably not a great boss. Just a little bit of insight for you. Uh, not doing a great job of running your kingdom when your own servants conspire against you. But that is Ammon's reign. But Ammon learned from his father before him named Manasseh. Now Manasseh has 
the uh, historical reference of being the worst king in the history of Judah. In fact, he was so bad that he plummeted the entire country or really set them on a course for eventual exile. So for 55 years, this guy reigned over the nation uh, of Judah. And he had everything from idolatry to child sacrifice. It was just awful, the things that this guy Manasseh did. But at the end of his career, the last few years, he was actually taken into captivity uh, by the Assyrians and carried off to Babylon, where he promptly cried out to the Lord, who he hadn't served for the previous 50 years, to save him. And God heard his cry and actually brought him back to finish his reign out as king. And at that point, what that caused was a major heart change for Manasseh. And he couldn't undo all the mess that he had done up to that point, but he, he surely tried. He tried to break down idols, and he tried to get rid of some of the things that he instituted himself. And that's really the grandfather that King Josiah would have known, because as I put up there on the screen, at the ripe age of eight years old, he became king. So that means that the last few years of Manasseh's life would have been the portion that Josiah really got to know his grandfather. And probably, in large part, the reason that Josiah was such a good king is he saw this change, or maybe he only ever knew this guy as Grandpa Manasseh. He didn't know the evil warmonger and you know baby killer guy. He knew this guy. So uh, as a, a quick aside, if there are any uh, grandparents, what I take out of this story is if you are trying to speak into the life of your grandkids, and perhaps you've even your own kids have maybe spun out a little bit, uh, rest assured that they do hear what you say. There are things that do settle and sink into their lives. So I think that's something that, that we can take from this part of the story that Josiah starts off really what becomes probably the most successful reign for any king since the time of David. And uh, something interesting happens in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign. So he's now 26 years old, if I did that math correctly. Uh, a guy named Hilkiah, one of the priests, finds the book of the law of Moses in the temple. So imagine if on the workday, we're actually cleaning up the sanctuary here and we find a Bible. How excited would we be? Not that excited because there are Bibles everywhere. But in this case, they had lost the book of the law, not just for the last 18 years, but probably for 40 or 50 years prior to that. So an entire generation had come and gone and had never had their Hebrew Bible or the book of the law, the Pentateuch. So, so excited they were that they bring this to King Josiah and they open it up and they read it for him and imagine the heartbreak that they experience when they get into the book and realize just what their sin is going to cause to happen. So Josiah, realizing the sin that they've been plunged into, he tears his clothes in mourning, and the first thing he does is he reintroduces the feasts to the Lord. So in 2 Chronicles 35, he reintroduces their biggest feast of the year, and that is Passover. And it says there that they have a Passover feast that had not been seen since the time of Samuel. So you can go all the way back up through these 20 kings and even beyond Saul, and there's the reign, or the the time where Samuel was judging over the nation, and they hadn't seen a Passover since then, some nearly 400 years. So he threw a monster party and really trying to start this revival or to get this revival going in his nation to try to save it. But unfortunately for Josiah, this was a physical revival. People were revived on the outside, but what there was not is there was no heart change and no true revival took place. So Jeremiah, and where he really picks up and began, is in the 13th year, it says, 
of the reign of King Josiah. So right in the middle of this really great king, and he gets to finish off basically 20 years of his career under this guy, uh, only to then have to minister to the nation after he has passed away. And what we find out is after Josiah passes off the scene, that the heart of the people really comes back to fruition. And they are plunged back into idolatry. And the reason Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet is he basically has a ministry that has to usher in the complete ruin of the nation. So he, he leads them all the way up to their uh, Babylonian captivity. So really a sad story, but what God's trying to pull out and what he's trying to do, and I put it as a second bullet point there, is God is trying to get their attention, very similarly to what I believe is God is trying to get our attention as a nation as well. And uh, talking about this with a group of friends a few weeks ago, in, in the book of Jeremiah and all the atrocities that would take place uh, through the, the nation as they were taken into captivity, is that the bigger you make God, the bigger G-God person you are, and to all of us reduce God to some point because we can't grasp his greatness and his might, but the bigger you make him in your life, really the smaller he shows up into things. So if you take this picture on the top right of this rainbow we took the last weekend, I mean, you can see God in that rainbow because you've made him so big, he shows up in the small. He shows up in a squirrel or a, a tree. He shows up in nature. But conversely, the smaller we make God, the more we reduce him down to the point to where he no longer even exists, the bigger God has to show up to get our attention. And that's really the spot these guys are in, that God's showing up in a big way. And we'd even read it and go, wow, that seems awful. But the fact of the matter is he's trying to get their slash our attention as we look at schools you know, being shot at and, and major disasters and catastrophes. He's trying to get the attention of his people to call them back. So that's the spot that these are, uh, this nation is in as we pick up after the longest introduction in the history of Parkland Chapel into verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. And behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquities, and their sin I will remember no more. So a tremendous prophecy that Jeremiah gives us here in the 31st chapter and it's really, like a lot of prophecies, it takes place in two different sections. We see the first coming of the prophecy and then the second coming of the, of the prophecy that we'll look at here in just a minute. But if we look at verse 32 in particular, we see God comparing himself in this relationship to a husband and a wife. It's very much like what Mike talked about last week in Romans, that this is the most intimate relationship God can, can share with us, and that's why he's put it out there that way, that the nation of Israel and, and he were supposed to have this union, this marriage together. And, and similarly to why Jesus is always called the bridegroom and the church is always the bride. But in the case of Hosea uh, in particular, the minor prophet Hosea, 
uh, God goes on to show us this in a real-life practical application. He tells his prophet Hosea that, listen, I want you to go out and I want you to find a wife. And I don't want you to just find any wife. I want you to take a woman of ill repute, a prostitute, and I want you to bring her into your house and start a family with her. And so Hosea, being obedient, he does that. And he brings in uh, this woman and they have children together. And then promptly, a few years later, she leaves him and goes back into a life of prostitution. So Hosea, I'm sure he was dejected. He probably thought, Lord, you told me to do this and took this woman, and now she's back to being a prostitute again. But then God speaks to him again, and he says, go back and buy her back. So the, for the price of a female slave, 15 shekels, he goes and purchases his wife back and cleans her up and brings her back into their life as his wife yet again. And the reason God goes to that length in the life of Hosea is to, is to show them this is what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. I brought them out of a life of idolatry. They've gone back to idols again, and someday I'm going to clean them up and bring them back into a right relationship for me. And it's a lot like where we were. You know, prior to, to a relationship with Jesus, we were out trying to find worship in something, usually worship in ourselves, but he cleans us up and he brings us back to make us one with him. Then in verse 33, what Jeremiah writes is, But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put their law, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So writing the law instead of writing it on stone, he's talking about writing it physically on their hearts. And the stone you could look at really being a correlation to the heart of the people. That when he handed them this law, they had these very stony, rigid hearts. They refused to accept it. They were a stiff-necked people. But what we read, if you flip with me back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as Paul is writing to the Corinthian church there, that Jesus' real plan is to, instead of having a law of stone, to in fact have a law of flesh. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You, being the Corinthian church, are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, but written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, the heart. So God's real intention with this is to write his law upon our hearts. We don't have to remember 613 commandments. No, no, we, we've got his law actually in our hearts, and we do what comes naturally from him, what flows out of him through us. So lastly, in verse 34, as we finish up this last verse, we see this two-part fulfilling of the prophecy, that no more shall every man teach his neighbor for every man, uh, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the greatest to the, to the least I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times in prophecy we see a first coming and a second coming, a first fulfillment and a second fulfillment, and this is no different. That the first coming, the first fulfillment of this prophecy in Jeremiah, we can see it fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26 in verse 28 in a scene that most of you will be familiar with, that being the scene of the upper room and the last supper. And what Jesus says in verse 28 is, For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' coming is done so to fulfill this first portion, to forgive 
of, of the, the nation, the world of sins. It also has a second implication, so too, for the world and for the nation of Israel. If you go back to the book of Daniel in the ninth chapter, and what this is, is this is a, a vision and really the revelation of that vision that's given to him, Daniel, by the Lord through the angel Gabriel. And what he says in verse 24 is, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So that's all confusing, right? But what this prophecy basically means is this 70-week period, these are weeks of years, and if we read on, we'll see that after 69 of those weeks have passed, that the Messiah will come, His first coming. And that's where we see Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and fulfilling the first portion of this prophecy. But what it says there is that in verse 26, it says the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. So after that 69th week, he will be cut off, and there's one week still remaining. Now that week corresponds directly to the seven years of tribulation that the world is going to have to go through before Jesus finally comes back and makes everything right putting an end to iniquity, an end to transgressions, right? So this is a promise that's given, again, uh, by the Lord in two different pieces. And what I love about this uh, imagery, though, as we look at this last portion where the knowledge of the Lord is poured out at the end of all this is in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. I know all of you spent a ton of time in Habakkuk. Uh, if you don't know how to get there, I'll read it for you so you don't have to worry about flipping back and forth. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 14 of Habakkuk, he writes, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right. So as 70% of our globe is covered by water, that's how much knowledge of the Lord is going to be poured out at this time. It's a beautiful thing as we, we try to figure out God's plan and what, what's God up to. And, you know, I want to know him better. But think about how he's going to pour himself out. And no longer are you going to load the kids up to head down to Gulf Shores to look at the ocean. You're going to load up and go to look at the knowledge of the Lord, right? So you're not going to fly anymore to Orlando for vacation because there's no knowledge of the Lord there. You're going to have to go to Tampa instead and look at it because there it is in the ocean. Because the guy with big ears, there's no knowledge of the Lord with that guy. All right, we had a lot of Disney fans there that didn't appreciate that. But the point to all this is really... We're looking for a heart change, and that's really the condition that we're in as a church. It's a condition we're in as a nation. That's a condition these guys were in. Is there's a lot of, of action that's taking place physically, but there's not a lot of true change that's happening internally. So as we look at some application to this, what are some things if we see that our heart needs to change, what are, what are some points that we can make, some heart-healthy exercises that can take place? And to begin with, before I start, let me make it clear. You are not capable of changing your heart on your own. You don't have that power. That's a power that can only be handled by God. Through your acceptance of Christ, it's the only way you can actually make a heart change. But much like heart-healthy exercise, there are things you can do if you're a heart patient that can lessen your chance of a heart attack. All right. Now, most of you may not be in tremendous shape like what I am right here. In front of you, but if you're not, you know, you can do all the exercises you want. You still may fall out of the chair. I may fall out of this chair from a heart attack. But I can do things to try to prevent 
the, the issues that come about as we have heart problems. And what are some of those exercises? What do they look like? I gave you four points here that we're going to go through because uh, I'm just Baptist enough to know that if I don't give you at least four points, uh, this way you can ignore three and pick one that you like the best. All right? So first of all, I put up their authenticity or transparency, as you might want to call it. And what I want to point out is that the power of our testimony is what, where really this release takes place. If you've been with us these last couple Wednesday nights, we have had two tremendous testimonies. And in each case, there has been a release of the Holy Spirit that you really can't, you can't understand it unless you're here. And I think what that is, is there is this transparency, this authenticity when the walls get broken down, where we see weakness, we actually see God and His strength, right? And if any of you have ever shared your testimony, you've probably experienced this. And, and the thing about your testimony is because it's yours, you don't have to remember a lot, right? This is your life you're talking about. I got the opportunity to share with a lady the other day in a, in a business setting, in a meeting, where I didn't expect it, but she was uh, lamenting over issues that she was having with her business. And she said, boy, you, you just seem calm about this as I talked about some things that were going on in mine. And I don't understand, like, what, I don't understand why you're calm. Well, for one, she didn't catch me in a bad moment. She caught me in a really good spot. But uh, I said, do you, do you want to hear it? Do you really want to hear it? Because I'll share it with you, but I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm just going to tell it to you like it is. And she said, boy, I do want to hear it. And by the time I'm done, I think she thought it was a lifetime episode or something. It, she was crying. I didn't cry because I'm a man. Big man. But, you know, sharing your testimony is an easy thing for us to do because it's our story. And what I want to look at in Revelation chapter 12, it's powerful. In the 12th chapter of Revelation in verse 11, it says, and they, being the saints, overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony combined with the blood of the lamb is what they used to overpower Satan in this instance. And this is the same thing that holds true for us. There is power in our testimony. The problem is, most of the time, we're like this, and we don't want to let go of it. I don't want to let anybody see. I don't want to let them know just how weak I am, because if I do, they'll think less of me, right? But in that authenticity, in that transparency, we see real power and change show up, not just in us, but in other people as we share with them. The next point is sanctification. And I put there, without being sanctimonious. That's a big word, too big for me, but the best way I put that is without being holier than thou, like the Pharisees were, right? On the outside, they did everything right, and Jesus even commended them for it. He said, listen, do as they say, just don't do as they do, right? They're saying the right thing. They're just not doing it. They're not practicing it, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to be set apart, to be sanctified, but we're not called to do it just to look down on people. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 32, I won't go there for the sake of time, but just to, to summarize the story, this is the section where he calls out Matthew, or Levi in this case, was his Hebrew name, to be one of his disciples. And as he calls him out, uh, Levi's so excited that he's just found Jesus, he, uh, he decides to have a big party. I'm going to have a Jesus party because I'm so thankful for what he's doing and what he's done for me. And he invites all these sinners over to his house. And the Pharisees' response is, what in the world are you doing with those sinners? How could you be there eating and dining with them? And Jesus said, listen, 
You don't call in a doctor to heal the people that are well. I didn't come to take care of the righteous. I came to take care of the sinners. And in this case, he meant self-righteous. So this is the relationship that Jesus had where he was completely sanctified, completely set apart, and yet he put himself in these situations. And many of you are in a spot where you uh, are in a job where you've got people that don't believe all around you, or you've got a group of friends that you used to do those things and now you don't. And let me encourage you that you don't have to, even though your testimony is great, you don't have to preach the gospel to them all the time to get them to see a change. They can see it just because, boy, there's something different about that guy. Well, he used to do that thing. He doesn't do that thing. He used to speak in that way. He doesn't speak in that way. There's these changes that they can see because of this piece, sanctification, not looking down on people like the judge from Caddyshack. I don't know why I, no Caddyshack fans either, but that's the guy down there on the bottom left. I always think of that when I think of someone that's sanctimonious. But, you know, we're not called to be that. We're called to just be set apart in the same spot or in a similar spot to what we've already been in. All right, let's move on to exercise number three. It's just like a Jane Fonda workout. We're doing great. All right, exercise number three, commendation over condemnation. Now, I have to admit, as I sit here in front of you, that in my natural state, I have a disease, and it's called grumpitis. I am naturally a grump. Like, I can look at things, and I can, I can be fine with them, but I'm not necessarily happy about it. In my career, it's done me pretty well because I've never been satisfied. But boy, personally, it can, that can tear you up. If you're never happy about anything, never satisfied with anything, nothing's ever good enough, you can, you can be a person that is continually grumpy. And what I want to point out, that if we commend people instead of condemning them, it actually, somehow or another, chemically, it works on us. That in us is a heart change begins to take place as we, instead of looking at the bad, we look at the good, and we begin to, to pass these compliments around that actually our heart is affected. You rock, you rule, right? Uh, so that's what really takes place. And a biblical example, so I get away from my corny examples, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas are making their way into the city of Athens. And upon arriving into the city of Athens, what Paul sees is a city that is completely entrenched in idolatry. They have so many idols that it's said historically there were actually more idols in the city of Athens at this time than people. They had idols to everything. I mean, bugs, dogs, cats, earth, wind, fire. Yeah, it should be a band. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. So they have idols to everything. and so much idolatry that they even set up an idol to the unknown god. Because they don't want to take a chance of not, uh, you know, worshiping everything. They're like, just in case we missed one, we don't want that guy mad. So we'll set up one to the unknown God. So Paul, in his spirit, is sick. He wants to throw up. He's so disgusted by what he sees. And instead, though, of going about to the men of Athens and standing up on a stool and saying, Men of Athens, burn in hell! That's not what he says at all. Instead, he says, Men of Athens... I see beyond all things, you are very religious. Boy, look how religious you are. He's not lying. He's not really even patronizing them. He's stating a fact. You are very religious. And the response that these guys have is, oh, you're right, we are pretty religious. I mean, we got a lot of gods around here, right? 
That's their response. And people from Athens didn't speak like that, by the way. I made that part up. They didn't, that's not their accent. But their response is then they give Paul an opportunity to, sh- to share with them a straight down the middle gospel message about the unknown God. He says, this unknown God that you've got the idols set up to is the God of heaven I want to tell you about. I want to share with you. And he reaches some of them. Some of them walk away and mock him, which, by the way, is going to happen. But others are actually reached, and they are touched by this message. So lastly, the final item is that of simplicity. That in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 3, is Paul is addressing the church of Corinth, who had been really plagued by uh, heretics. And these heretics did a good job, because as they came into the church... They wouldn't try to just completely say that everything you know is wrong. They would go just a few degrees off. And anybody that's done any surveying knows that if you go just a few degrees off, by the time you get down a mile away, well, you missed your mark big time. And that's what these guys were doing. And so that's a little bit of the backdrop as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow... As a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. So this simplicity that is in Jesus had been missed by them. They tried to put different things into their salvation. Really, what they were trying to do was make it a work that they could participate in. But understand this Bible math here. Bible math is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. There is nothing you can do to deserve or warrant or have a part in this piece that's called salvation. He did it all. In his own words, he said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. That's an act he did on his own for us, something for us to accept. And just to to prove my Bible math out, this is actually interesting. This was in our Bible reading today, or yesterday maybe, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14 Solomon writes this, and I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That's Bible math. It's all on him, none of it on us. And yet, what we want to do continually is we want to put different uh, parameters on it. Boy, you know, and what we do a lot of times in the church is we want to throw baptism in there. Maybe that's a piece of our salvation. We want to throw for these Jews what they would throw as circumcision in there. And both of those instances were good things. They were both to show an outward sign of an inward change. But neither one of them saved anybody. That's the thing. And that's the spot we get in, and we, get, we do get tangled up and complicated with the legalities of church, and, and boy, if you've come from different spots and different church backgrounds, maybe you've been there, where you get to thinking, boy, if I, if I just do this in this certain way, Jesus will love me. Boy, if I just do this this way, he'll accept me. And the fact of the matter is there is nothing you can do to add to the cross to make it any more worthwhile. And in fact, if you add anything to it, you've actually made it nothing because you've put your own efforts behind it. And our striving, the other piece that this does to us is that it takes these things that we do, that we think we're doing for the Lord, then we continue to carry them out, and they become obligations, right? So if you've served in church any period of time, if it becomes about anything other than Jesus, eventually you get worn out and you get burnout, right? What Mike likes to say, if your upkeep, uh, if your 
input exceeds your output, your upkeep becomes your downfall, right? So this is the same thing we're talking about. And what it really boils down to, and this is how simple it, it is, if you go with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, uh, as Paul writes to the church of the Colossians there, Colossians 3.23 says this, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So if you're in a spot where whatever you do, you're serving Jesus, whether it's here at the church, whether it's in your profession, whatever you're doing, if you aren't working for that guy that's a real jerk or that gal that's a real jerk, but instead you view it that I'm working for Jesus. He's got something he wants me to do in this spot, then friends, you can never be disappointed. There's no way you can ever be down about what you're doing because he's got you in that spot for a reason, right? This is how simple this all boils down to, that whatever we do, if we remember who we're really working for, then it makes it so much easier for us to understand and not to complicate it with our own ideas and our own ideology. Just boil it down to the simplicity that is the cross. And that's my prayer for us as we look at heart changes. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this time. Thank you for these people that came together, Father. Thank you for your word that can really go down deep. And we look at things that affect our heart, uh, things that really we we get into that harden our heart. Father, please take away the obligations that we put upon ourselves and let us serve you freely because you are a God that has promised us a tremendous inheritance. That's it. There is nothing, Lord, here on this earth that can be like what you've promised us. So we thank you for that. We praise you for the simplicity that is the cross and the simplicity is uh, the fact that you did it all. So we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.